Greetings and welcome to the Pat Asher Radio Show coming at you from Moray Bay Studios where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibilities. If you happen to be in South Florida, you may be listening to the show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 102.5 FM. If so, please note that every episode is also uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com and available on our podcast feed. Do a search for The Filter on your favorite podcast app. No guest today. This will be a solo show. A reminder that, as I just stated when welcoming you to the program. This is a show about unknown knowns. And if that phrase doesn't make any sense to you, know that I've explained it in detail in past episodes, including at the beginning of episode 36. The thing about unknown knowns is that they often seem obvious once they are stated. And some of the things I'm going to begin with today may seem that way to you, but stick with this. I promise before long we'll get to some things you hadn't expected. I don't want to give too much away, but stick around for why inflation is harder than you might think to understand and how you either will be a king or a peasant in the future. So without any further ado, let's begin. And I'm going to begin with a simple observation. Nobody works for you. Nobody. You can hire people. You can pay people. You can contract someone to do something. But nobody works for you. People work for themselves. They work to get paid. They work to pay bills. They work to gain skills. They work because they were told that doing this type of job would make them happy. They work because they were told doing this type of job would help them get a better one. They work because having a particular job title is prestigious. They work because they have nothing better to do with their time, so they might as well do something that's considered work by society and pays them. Not that I would know anything about that. There is, on the one hand, nothing new about this. People have always worked for themselves, even when they are working for others. That's why we have the expression, if you want the job done right, you have to do it yourself. You work for you, so the things you do directly for yourself will be done with no conflict of interest, and instructions won't get lost in translation. Also, if you're doing something for yourself, then you're internally motivated to get it done. So if you can do it right, you probably will do it right. So far, we're on familiar territory here, but there is something new and important about work in our current moment. The context of how it's done and how it's evaluated has changed a lot. If you were a cobbler, and that's just an unfancy word for a shoemaker, for those of you who no longer talk like it's 1599, and you hired an apprentice, he'd be working alongside you all day long. He'd still be working for himself and to gain enough skills to open up a shop and compete with you, but along the way you'd have the skill, time, and expertise to evaluate his work 
at a granular level if he's slacking off, cutting corners, doing subpar work, or failing to clean up after himself, you'd know right away. You could instruct him, admonish him, maybe even beat him, depending on your arrangement and the custom at the time. Our modern context is much different if you are a boss at a company of any size, and nowadays the average worker works for a company with at least a hundred employees, then you likely have a lot of people working under you who do things you are unable to evaluate at a granular level in an ongoing way. This wasn't always the case, even for bosses with lots of employees. For jobs that directly created an observable, evaluatable object, the next best thing to having someone who genuinely works for you is having someone whose work you can completely evaluate and who you can easily replace if that work isn't up to snuff. Consider the foreman system. A good factory foreman overseeing an assembly line style of production could track the effort and output of dozens of workers at a fairly close level. So while the foreman had no illusions about who the folks on the assembly line ultimately worked for, it didn't matter that much. Their output was their output, and if a worker fell behind and started, say, stuffing candies in her mouth because she couldn't keep up with the pace of wrapping bonbons in foil that was required, it wouldn't take long for the foreman to notice this and find someone else to replace her if the pace was one that could be done by some average worker. Today's workplaces are much more complicated, and evaluation is much harder. In an office, it's not always clear exactly what everybody does, and the amount of time it takes someone to complete a task could indicate that they're slow, or it could be an indicator that the task was much harder than anticipated. This is certainly the case with software development, a field I worked in for many years. The inability to properly judge output, or as I say, even figure out what employees should be doing sometimes, leads to the kinds of useless bosses parodied in popular culture. That boss in office space who was obsessed with TPS reports, not to defend him, but that was likely one of the only clear metrics he had for evaluating his employees. Were they doing this one thing he could judge with his lack of knowledge and insight into the job they were actually supposed to be doing and how that would help the company? Not that he wants to help the company, he works for himself, just like everyone else at the company, but that's all the more reason why he needs to show that he's altered an employee's behavior in some measurable way. Otherwise, how does he justify drawing a salary? But for now, let's leave the factory and the office behind and talk about your dream job of opening a fine restaurant. It has to be your dream, you people out there, because Lots of people are doing this, and none of them is me, because I see it as an absolute nightmare. My guess is those people, you people, are blinded by the potential for prestige, but there are lots of better paths to prestige that don't involve a most certain loss of your investment capital, combined with endless effort in a hot, windowless kitchen, combined with a zillion stressful details like the slowly rotting food in your fridge. 
Did you check the state of those cucumbers? They're marginal at best. No way you're getting a Michelin star if you serve those to an undercover critic. But let's say you ignore all this downside, or maybe you embrace it as a masochist, and you decide to open a fancy Italian restaurant with a wood fire oven, one of those custom-made things that look like a turtle shell, and you insert the pizza in in the gap there. So you get one of those wood fire ovens, you import a Rancilio espresso machine directly from Milan, walk-in wine cooler, only the best. You, you're an expert in food and drink, flesh and liquid, but your business depends on machines, complex, expensive machines that you know very little about. If you, if your walk-in cooler breaks, you hire a fridge guy. If the espresso machine is on the fritz, you call Rancilio, and they send out a highly paid technician. Over time, you get to know some basics about how these machines work and how to do maintenance and some other minor repairs, but sometimes, maybe even often, one of them breaks in a way that forces you to pay for support. That old-time cobbler, he had a few dozen leatherworking tools, knew how to use each one expertly, and if one broke, it was immediately obvious what went wrong and whether it was something he could fix himself. That's not the position you are in. You are dependent on others in a very different way than the cobbler is dependent on his apprentice or the blacksmith. You have to trust that the guy who fixes your Hobart dishwasher hooks up all the hoses in the back properly so you won't be slowly dripping water into some hidden corner that slowly molds and rots and lets in a rat just before the health inspector arrives and notices and now you have to pay her off because she absolutely positively does not work for you. So now you have to temporarily put her on your off-the-books payroll until you figure out how the rodents are getting in. Continuing along on the mighty and powerful Keys Talk FM with its newly enhanced transmitter and doing a solo show talking about some things related to our modern world, I guess you'd say. Let's set aside workplaces and bosses for a moment and talk about the personal. In thinking about this episode... I wrote down a list of all the people who get some amount of money from me over the course of a year. It's a big list, and I don't think I'm that unusual, and this is a list that's limited to people who provide some significant service to me, not just sell me a can of pop at the corner store. These are insurance agents, landscape people, healthcare providers, otherwise known as doctors and their staff, and let me focus on this last one for a moment, because if anything should have been reinforced as far as our understanding that the people you hire don't work for you over the last two years, it's that the medical practitioners that you hire do not work for you. Nothing whatsoever about their incentive structure or the system that they work in, from the hospitals to the insurance companies to the payments from the federal government for diagnosing certain illnesses, none of those things are aligned with your own 
healthcare outcomes. They're aligned with the interests of those various groups of big pharma, as it's called, the pharmaceutical companies with the hospital system they work in, and so forth. And as uh, Scott Adams, the cartoonist turned public intellectual, has observed, the classic dictum of follow the money works even better than it should as a predictor. In other words, even when it's not clear that people would shade their decisions in favor of what produces the most profit, if you have to bet on how people act, you should always bet on a result that aligns with profit-seeking or profit-maximization. Will there be another Fast and Furious movie? Uh, Of course. So long as the franchise is a license to print money, money will be printed. The same, of course, applies to the vaccines that are now being made compulsory in so many places. Expect that to continue until it's no longer profitable. The pharmaceutical companies are, of course, maximizing their profit, not your health or certainly your freedom. Why should they care about these things when their bread is buttered on the other side of the toast? Your misery is their health in this specific case. I've discussed before the idea from Vin Armani that we are living in a dim age. The dim age is a time of unlimited access to data and ideas combined Combined with a deep epistemic retardation, a lack of intellectual curiosity, and mob mentality that causes conclusions to conform to desired tribal narratives. If you're familiar with stats, a concise way to put this would be to say that your priors now fully determine your posteriors. Nothing changes your mind unless the hive mind you've been plugged into changes its mind to suit a more useful narrative. Historically, no profession outside of politics and the law is more plugged into mob mentality and desire to align itself with powerful interests than medicine. This is why every aspect of treatment and recommendations outside of highly empirical immediate feedback in places like the emergency room where they're doing surgeries, has gone through one trend after another. My wife is pregnant right now, and modern pregnancy comes with lots of classes in learning. I'd say a full order of magnitude more than when my first child was born back in 2003. Lots of these classes and learnings are about all the procedures and beliefs we used to have about pregnancy, but now we don't and about all of the medical interventions that we have now and from the perspective of many of the people who work more for you than for the hospital, like midwives and doulas, these current interventions are mostly unnecessary or at the very least overused, and based on the data, they carry significant lifetime risks for the child being born but your doctor is a rule follower, not an independent thinker. If she was, she would have dropped out of medical school or been kicked out long ago. It's why your doctor will, with a straight face, recommend that you inject your 10-year-old with an experimental vaccine without the slightest concern that the data show it to be more dangerous to your kid than uh, the disease that it is intended imperfectly, very, very imperfectly, to prevent. 
not only is your doctor a product of the dim age as much as anyone else, and the stories I could tell as someone who understands stats about my own abysmal discussions with doctors, uh, that is a, a very low bar, but he has gone through a conformist process and has a very deep vested interest in not rocking the boat. That is just his nature as a professional in that particular system. This may be why, when you look back through history, the people who were the greatest embracers of tyrannical regimes were often medical professionals willing to aid the regime in whatever way the regime wanted aid. Uh, this is not to say that it is impossible to get good medical care from your doctor. It's certainly possible for regular people, but it's going to be a lot easier if your doctor works more for you and less for the system. This is the case with the very wealthy. You saw that Joe Rogan found a doctor who was willing to customize the treatment process for him with a variety of different options that uh, were probably very well researched and very well tailored to the particular risk profile of the client, in this case, Joe Rogan. But most of us don't have that luxury. We are limited in who we get as a doctor, and that doctor will be part of some system and not a freelancer with a small handful of clients who he is or she is attentive to uh, and willing probably at that level to also make house calls. That did used to be a thing, and it used to be a thing even for people who were not at the very high end of the economic spectrum. They could get a doctor to show up to their house, but we no longer have our economy structured in that kind of a way. Right now, at the low to mid-ends of our economy, Things have happened which, I believe, degrade the quality of our care and the services that we can get in some interesting ways. One of those has to do with technology and the complexity introduces. Another has to do with efficiencies and who the efficiency kind of belongs to, you might say. So in the case of your doctor, for you, it's highly efficient. If your doctor comes and visits you, it's not very efficient from the perspective of the doctor or the hospital to have their practitioners out traveling and spending lots of time in transit, as opposed to hanging out in a medical building where patients have to wait and the doctor is queuing everybody up and then seeing them one after another after another. And as the system demands, seeing people in as short an amount of time as he can in order to get them out of there and get paid, usually by the insurance company that doesn't really have any incentive for you to have the time you wait minimized. They want to minimize the amount of the bill, and that's minimized by very, very short uh, periods of time when the doctor sees you, and also if you can be queued up and the waiting time and inefficiencies are all laid on your lap. When we come back from the break, I'm going to talk some about the ways in which 
complexities and changes to demographics have created more of a binary situation in terms of the services and products that we're able to buy and what that means for you as a consumer. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM. I am Matt Asher, and I am talking about changes to the world and in the broadest sense, but more specifically, changes to the goods and services we have available to us and the changes that have happened because of rising levels of complexity, efficiency, and demographics. But I want to go back right now to the 1950s, to some random car in the 1950s, and note that at that time there were lots of things that could go wrong with the car. Cars were complicated even back then, but the majority of those could be fixed by a regular Joe with enough time in a garage with basic tools and maybe a Chilton's repair manual. Nowadays, either the problem with our car is something trivial that you can still fix, like a windshield wiper replacement, or it's something that you couldn't do without access to highly specialized tools and computer diagnostics. If your auto shop tells you the problem is a bad chip, how could you possibly verify that? Your best bet might be to take the car to another service center, but then what if they tell you the problem is with some other complex system and the cost to fix is as high at both places? How do you decide which one to trust? What if they're both wrong? The problem we have right now is that we are constantly in a low-level battle with all of the people that we pay to help us. Remember, again, they don't work for us, they work for them. We have endless trade-offs between quality of life, money, and hassle level. I'm in a much better place financially than when I was in my early 20s when I lived off ramen and McDonald's two-for-two-dollar meals. Just about everything is better, and I appreciate the hell out of those things. But it's also worth noting that I spend a lot of time and energy making sure the people who are paid to help my wife and I are actually doing what we want. My father, who will spend 10 hours researching tires before buying replacements, once said that being a good consumer can be a full-time job. He wasn't wrong. Even if you do a tenth of the research he does, that's a lot of time spent looking at consumer reports. There's really no such thing as handing off your decisions to the experts. First of all, how would you know which ones to choose? You you have to become an expert in everything at this point as some kind of form of self-defense, if nothing else, which makes the idea of having a single person, a personal concierge who works closely with you, if not fully for you, such an attractive vision. I'll get back to that idea, at least in a limited way. Regardless, all these decisions that we have to make and the challenges that they present are in part due to the fact that complexity has been our collective backstop for otherwise stagnant 
productivity and counterbalancing the ever-expanding drain of the state on our output, a drain that was not just a background leeching but became an outright destructive force in 2020 with the forced shuttering of many businesses. The reaction to this is to supercharge the search for solutions that scale and avoid employees. We were always destined to see machines taking your order at McDonald's and scanning your items at the grocery store, but the worse it's become to have workers, the faster we're seeing those replacements. We've also got an important bifurcation happening here where Essentially, the peasants get AI and the elites get personal assistance, and of course, the quality of that AI is going to vary a lot. I get a little of each, at least for now, but I'm not sure how much longer that will last. This is something new that's happening. The lower end is being absorbed by automation, and what isn't being automated is being made more efficient for the providers, not the consumers. This was the example of the doctor who will no longer make a house call because it's inefficient for him, even though it's helpful for you as a consumer. Systems are being increasingly set up to be efficient for the provider of that service. For example, that example of the McDonald's automated machine that's highly convenient for them. It may be convenient for you, but if it is, that's besides the point. It exists to be convenient and cheap for them. The What's happening right now is that we're redrawing the threshold for something that might be considered white glove service much higher, and that transition between kind of automated peasant level service and high-end white glove service, that transition is becoming much sharper. In other words, to be able to afford to get a doctor to visit you, as I mentioned with the Rogan case, you'd have to be at least in the top percentile wealth or income. And since a doctor's visit is now a luxury good, it's tailored toward that highly upscale market. You can no longer get an average doc experience, but at your home, your choices are to go to the clinic and pay less or pay a fortune for that expert doctor on call whose entire business is making a dozen wealthy clients happy. It still might not be clear what's happening here, so let's pick a theoretical scenario. Suppose for a moment that people not only enjoyed massages, but that massages were a vital part of regular health and enjoyment of life for everyone. In a free market, you'd have a robust market for massages at all levels. Lots of options, lots of trade-offs between cost, quality, duration, and uh, let's just call them add-ons. At the top of the market, the uber-wealthy will have dedicated personal masseuses trained at the finest school, maybe one waiting around on each of their yachts to give them the full European spa treatment followed by the happiest of Asian endings. At the bottom end of the massage market, you'd have 15-minute shoulder maulings from bored and homely teenagers at the mall, which I believe you have right now. Because this is a thought experiment where everyone needs massages and we have a free market and distribution of income with a robust middle class and 
a low Gini coefficient for you econ nerds out there. There will be massage options for every budget. Now let's introduce two changes. The first is that income inequality increases. We have more poor people, lots of rich folks, and a thinned out middle class. Fewer people are looking for mid-level massages, so fewer masseuses will be offering these. If you're looking for the red lobster of massages, it will be harder to find. And secondly, let's say that technology improves. If you've ever bought one of those as-seen-on-TV massagers, you know they are okay. Fine in a pinch, and pinch is an apt word because that's exactly what they do to your skin as they spin around their pressure points, squeezing your flesh. But in our brave new world, those oversized coin-fed mall massage chairs become bearable, and automated options like the hydro massage get better and cheaper, and if you haven't seen that option, imagine a jet of water pounding a sheet of plastic on your back, like your body was going through a car wash, but the operator was kind enough to wrap you up in a tarp-like burrito before sending you through. Tech puts a lot of the lower-end masseuses out of work, and maybe even some mid-level people get the boot, as their customers opt for a less socially awkward experience if they don't like the actual hands-on approach. So now, what does the market look like? The low end of massages is mostly machines, though I'm sure there'll always be a handful of hands-on masseuse for nursing home occupants and others who can't be subjected to the Theragonator 2000. The dwindling middle classes are mostly accommodated by premium mediocre machines, and maybe they splurge from time to time for the hands-on experience, which is now only really available at a higher price point than before, as the middle class masseuse is a thing of the past. The high end of massages is booming, as enough of the middle class made the jump into genuinely wealthy to make for a large luxury market. If this were a car market, it would now be mostly Kias and Benzes. The market continuum has been replaced by two poles and a great chasm or desert in between. This has real-world implications for you and me, assuming you are somewhere in the middle right now. It means your level of service is headed south fast. This is why your calls are taken by a Siribot or an Indian call center. In short, if you're not among the upper class, you are becoming a peasant. Before continuing, I should note that you are listening to the Matt Asher radio show on Keys Talk FM, or maybe you are listening to this in podcast form as The Filter. Either way, we are talking about complexity and a divide between low-level and high-level services and a hollowing out in the middle. Quick story here about me, about Eight years ago, back when I was living in Toronto, I decided I no longer wanted to be treated like a peasant, at least when it came to banking. So I got what are, is called a private banker. I don't know that they have the exact system here in the U.S., but basically you have an individual representative who is in charge of making sure any banking issues that you have are taken care of, and there's a special place that you can go, a dedicated office, if you want individualized help or you have something tricky that you need to deal with. This is 
is not a cheap service. At the time I signed up for it, I think it was about 100 a month. It's now, I believe, up above 120 a month and rising fast, which even in Canadian dollars is still a significant amount of money. Uh, but what you get for that is you are able to escape from the endless holds and voicemail hell that you sometimes get when you call your bank. And instead of waiting in a cramped lobby to do some large transaction at a teller who you really hope gets it right while everyone else is listening in to your large transaction, you wait in a comfy sofa and the receptionist who somehow is able to greet you by name even though you only come in once every few months offers you a coffee while you wait to go back into a private office. The experience is not just better than an ordinary teller at a downtown uh, branch, it's orders of magnitude better, and of course it better be for that price. I see this for better or worse as the future. I used to have an ongoing conversation with a now ex about the need for a personal concierge who would handle all of these things, as I mentioned. I think that would be a wonderful service to have. Instead, at this point, you can get it in small ways, like I've done with the private banker, but certainly if you wanted that in a global way, that would be a highly useful, though no doubt very expensive service to have someone who was taking care of all of those uh, inconveniences for you, like being on hold with the cable company or even just being there to wait in the four-hour window that they give you that they nonetheless somehow often seem to miss. Ideally, you'd have someone like that, and the vast majority of your mental energies and my mental energies would go into becoming an expert in my job, and ideally I'd have that same job for decades. I'd become a true and deep expert. I don't think that that's going to happen. I don't think that's the world that we live in. I think that what is happening right now is that we will have a group of elites, super well-paid professionals. So for example, a professional athlete, if you know anything about the lives that they lead, they have people who help them with everything, with accounting, with purchases, personal assistance. The team itself makes sure that a wide range of their needs are taken care of from diet, so they're fed, and of course they have personal trainers and masseuses and uh, physical therapists, and so when they're not playing or practicing, they can spend their time playing video games or goofing off or whatever else it is that they do, and no mental energy has to go into, say, deciding what good tires they should put on their uh, McLaren to replace the ones that wore out after 2,000 miles. So there you have the high end, and then, of course, at the low end, you have people who are required to make all those decisions for themselves because they don't have a choice. I suppose at the very, very low end, you get prisoners, and once again, they don't have to make any decisions about uh, what to cook for dinner or, uh, of course, uh, replacing the tires on their car is not an issue in that case. So you have you have a certain level of... Uh, of hand-holding, I guess, at the very, very bottom, though it comes along with a complete and utter loss of freedom. And 
That, of course, is the situation as well. When you come to the AI world that is coming, you will have choices, but those choices will be interpreted by an artificial intelligence, and that intelligence will be crafting those decisions for you in the sense that you will have an AI-powered car, and that car will decide how to get you from A to B, and you're just going to hope that it is indeed the most efficient path. We have to take a break, but when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the implications at the societal level of a society in which it is very easy to get pulled down towards the, let's just call it the peasant level, where all of your interactions are with AIs and you don't really get much of a human treatment from a human being that works for you or you have uh, an upper class that gets the white glove treatment. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM. I am here on my own today doing a solo show about complexity, about automation, about distributions of income, and about the way in which we are to some extent now a winner-take-all society. There's a number of reasons for that. I've gone into some of them relating to technology and the increasingly skewed distribution of income that we have. Uh, And also I alluded to some of the governmental pressures that cause that kind of a skewed uh, income distribution. Regardless, though, of how this has come about, the bottom line for us is that you have more and more a kind of winner-take-all situation where the winner group actually can be fairly large, but probably no more than, say, 3 to 5%. And then you have almost everybody else, and that group is getting pulled down to the lowest common denominator of service. So everyone who isn't in that elite group has to call up the phone company on their own and go through all that voicemail and so forth. And then at the very top, you have people who have a personal assistant who is going to handle that issue for them. So what are the implications of society moving in this particular direction? I think one of them is that you will see a large group of people who used to be in the middle class deciding that the grind just isn't worth it for them anymore. You may get to a place where the marginal benefit of an additional 10% of income if you are in the middle class, that's really not enough to move the needle. Maybe it gets you a little bit better meals out. But it doesn't allow you to opt out of all of the complexities and inconveniences and interactions with AI that you're going to have over the course of a week, a year, or your lifetime. It's not enough to catapult you into that higher level of income where you're going to afford a personal concierge of some sort. So what's the point then? You know, what is the point of 
the the struggle, the strife, the hard work, and so forth. And I think to some extent we are already seeing that. Of course, there's a number of reasons why people would be opting out of the labor force. Certainly a lot of the policy response to COVID has driven people out of the labor force. That's something I will probably talk more about in another episode. For now, I'll just note that as more and more people are disgruntled about upward mobility, you're going to have some definite knock-on effects from that. It's going to be harder to entice workers with with incomes in that middle range, you're going, which of course, that's going to increase the pressure on companies to find ways to work around those workers, to automate it, to use computers or other tools, or to outsource or to do whatever they can to have to hire fewer people. Again, the COVID response policies are extremely punitive for businesses that don't have the bureaucratic apparatus to handle them and to fire and rehire large numbers of people. So you're going to have to either provide higher, higher, much higher carrots, or you're going to have people disappearing. And actually, one of those carrots that may come online is that, is the personal concierge. This would be my bet, is that within a certain amount of time, you will see businesses offering what some reduced version of what I talked about in terms of the NBA offering a kind of hands-on, personal, but shared among many employees, concierge, who's going to do a wide variety of things for you and simplify your life in some ways. That would be an attractive thing that would allow you to have some level of ability to cash in on a higher paying job without being all the way at the top level where you can afford someone like that who is dedicated to you and only you. So I would expect to see more businesses offering something like that, like a shared concierge. And then of course, there'll be the businesses that can't, and they will be looking to automate away everything they can't, and then probably generally providing a low level of, of of assistance to people at the lower level or trying to find automated or AI solutions that can increase the level of uh, of assistance that they can provide to customers at a at a rock bottom price. Finally, I want to mention the ultimate backstop here for this division. And it gets us to a topic that I've talked about recently, in fact, in the very last episode, the metaverse. The metaverse is a virtual world. In fact, there are at the moment competing, multiple competing virtual worlds that you might access with, say, VR goggles that allow you to navigate it as you would navigate a normal world or as close as possible as we can replicate that experience with a VR headset on. What you get from these kind of VR worlds is the ability within the world to get the kind of experience, though uh, either provided by other human beings in a virtual way or by an AI that goes a long way to simulating what you could get as a in the middle class level of service 
in the real world as of not that long ago. So one of the examples that I talked about in the last one was a Barbados is opening a virtual embassy that people will be allowed to visit. I assume that they will be able to do things like some basic interactions that you might have with an embassy as far as passport or whatnot goes. And when you have this kind of a virtual experience, it will be certainly much cheaper for the uh, Barbadian government to uh, to offer. And I should note, I didn't note in that episode, that uh, I did do some work in Barbados, not for Barbados, the country, but for a company that had an office located in Barbados. It was actually kind of a sweet rental house that they had there in Barbados and enjoyed my brief time there. But at any rate, Barbados is just one example of uh, a a government in this case that is offering a service to its people that will be probably some combination of virtual and real. You will enter and there'll probably be a variety of people who are actually NPCs who are AIs who will show you in air quotes there to the room where you will sit down and have some kind of a discussion with what might be an actual human being who is fronted by an avatar that you're talking to. So it's a semi-automated process. And that is, of course, exactly what I've been talking about as the kind of missing middle that's going away, that mid-level of service that might be partially automated and partially human. Maybe that makes a comeback in the virtual world. Maybe companies see this virtual world as a way to tap into what you are now going to be missing because you are not going to be able to get it in the real world. And I think that there's a a wide variety of these services that could be available, and certainly there will be companies that capitalize on this kind of a demand. What you will see, though, then, is that people are to some extent retreating from the real world, throwing up their hands and saying, well, in the real world, everything is hard and complicated, and I can't get any real individual help. But in this virtual realm, well, to some extent, people will be treated like gods because it costs no more for an AI to treat you like a god than it costs for an AI to treat you terribly, so long as programming the AI to treat you well is something that can be done on a reasonable budget, then why not have the AI be absolutely absolutely obsequious to the people who are trying to get something done? Why not have it be as flattering and as nice to you as it possibly can? Those are possible in the virtual world. In the real world, those would be very expensive things to have a human being essentially following you around and singing your praises in the virtual world. That's that's a possibility. And if you can get something over there for a low cost, and that's all you could afford anyway, then this might be a viable option. Spend more time in the virtual universe, get more assistance from a combination of NPCs, of these AI bots that are really nice to you and probably very attractive uh, as well, might even be tailor-made to whatever you find attractive, whatever that is, whether it is human or furry, I suppose. And 
The topic of furries did come up in that last conversation. If you missed it, it is on the podcast feed, which you can find at mattasher.com or by looking for The Filter on your favorite podcast app. So that's the world that we are heading to, and I don't I don't particularly like it. I don't like the disappearance of the mid-level of service in the real world as someone who is at that mid-level. I don't like that it's disappearing, and I probably will find that I'm setting aside more of my income for those strategic buys of higher level service like I did in the banking industry when I got the private banker, which was a huge benefit to me and, and well worth the cost, even though, as I say, it's it's not cheap. So I will be doing more selective purchasing of those kinds of mini concierge services. But then beyond that, I don't know. I'm not interested in getting pulled into this virtual world. I'm not interested in spending time in metaverses, but I'm not so sure that I'll have a choice. I mentioned in the previous episode that the Barbadian embassy is probably wonderful if you don't have to actually physically travel to the embassy building and take all the time off work. You can just log on to your computer and get it done. But at the same time, probably over time, those virtual experiences will become the primary or even the only way that you can get certain kind of services. So the Barbadian embassy will reduce the hours of its actual embassy and push people towards the virtual. And what was a service that was offered to everyday people will now only be offered through a metaverse. And that metaverse, of course, will be controlled by a corporation that does not, absolutely does not work for you. If you are listening to this on the air or on the podcast feed shortly after it aired, then you just had your Thanksgiving. I just had mine and it was absolutely wonderful. I hope yours was too. I want to give you a special thanks for listening to my show and possibly listening to my various podcast episodes. I appreciate every single one of you. And I want to let you know that coming soon, I will also have a TV show that will be airing. I'll let you know more about that in future episodes.